but also with the contrite and the lowly of heart. This is the wonder of our worship, that we worship a God who is transcendent, who is other than we are, who is the creator, utterly distinct from your creation, and yet a God who is near, who is imminent, who is close to his image bearers, and particularly those whose heart is rightly prepared to enter into your presence, humbled, trusting in your mercy, trusting in your grace, embracing the truth and the reality of your promises, which for us are gloriously fulfilled. We've seen the fulfillment in Christ, who came, who was crucified, who was buried, who was raised, and you, our Lord, who is right now at the right hand of the Father for us, interceding for us as we await your return. So we ask you, as we seek and endeavor to be faithful to you until we are with you eternally together in the resurrection, uh, we ask you to uh, shape us and mold us through your word, to strengthen us to think and live and feel righteously, that we might have lives that glorify you to, both individually and corporately as your body. To that end that we pray, in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Well, we're finishing up what we began last week, which is a little uh, sidebar to the message of Christ to his church at Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2. And as we noted last week, uh, Christ's message to his church at Ephesus comes to us with a power and a, that comes in part because of its surprise. And namely, the surprise is that Jesus, who gives such high and lofty commendations to his church, yet finds room to rebuke her as well. She is, as he says in verse 2, a church that has persevered, that has rejected evil men, that has put to death those who call themselves apostle and are found to be false, who have endured for his name's sake and have not grown weary, and yet receive this rebuke from the Lord that they have left their first love. And indeed, he calls them to return to do the works that they did at first and then threatens them, warns them with the reality that if they do not repent, they will have their lampstand removed. And so these are startling words. Uh, they are words that uh, stand in contradiction to what we would expect to hear in our contemporary age, where everything that just happens to mean the name of Jesus, say the name of Jesus, is accepted as real and genuine. But Jesus calls us to something more. He calls us to a life that's not merely conforming externally, that's not merely displaying some kind of outward commitment, but that is, in fact, a life that resonates within the whole of our being, that is pursuing him in our thoughts, that in our inner affections, and then manifesting that in our will. In other words, he calls us to holiness. And the reason we pull the car over, as it were, at this point is because that brings up a greater issue and a very common issue within the church and in, and in our lives and in our heart, and that is how do we discern that we're operating out of genuine love for Christ or whether we're operating out of a heart of legalism? Well, first, let me just remind us by defining these terms and what we covered just generally last week. And then this week we'll spend the bulk of our time looking at how do we discern it practically within our heart. But let's set the foundation again first. What do we mean by legalism? What do we mean by legalism? Uh, well, a simple way to define that is this. Legalism is the attitude that views personal obedience 
as the means of gaining favor or standing with God. That's just sort of a general definition. An attitude that inwardly rests on personal obedience or conformity to some standard as laying the foundation for our acceptance by God, for our favor with God. One said it this way, captured the heart of it. He said, in essence, it is any teaching that diminishes or distorts the generous love of God and the full freeness of his grace. Love, we're using in this sense. It is that spirit-produced response of man to God's grace in Christ and consequently to all people, especially and uniquely to believers. When we refer to the heart of love, it is that that spirit-produced response within the child of God to all that God is in his person and all that he has done for us in Christ, and it overflows in love to all men, but particularly and especially to believers, those who are in the family of God. Now, laying the foundation then for understanding and discerning between these two internal realities, it's important to broaden out, and this is a reminder essentially of what we covered last week, to understand the nature of salvation within two of its core fruits or two core realities, and that is justification and sanctification. And, And these are theological terms, they are biblical terms. And they're important for us to understand. Confusing these has led to much error in the church. Too much error in the church. The most common error that we're familiar with is Roman Catholicism. The, the, the theological error, or one of the core theological errors, is that the Church of Rome conflates the idea of justification and sanctification. And it relates and it uh, locates justification within the righteousness of the sinner themselves, not outside of them in Christ. And so, therefore, it becomes then a religion of works. Uh, But let me back up and define these terms, and then just as a way of reminder, and uh, why it's important to keep them separate. Justification, we could define this way. It is a legal declaration of righteous in Christ through faith. It is faith that lays hold of the righteousness of Christ that stands in the presence of who stands in the presence of God for us. It is a declaration in a moment of time by God toward the sinner based on the person, the finished work of Christ and the person of Christ. It is completed and it is outside of us and we noted that it is sometimes referred to as an alien righteousness. In other words, the Christian stands on the righteousness of Christ completed on their behalf and that is the foundation of our relationship with him. That's why Christians can be called saints and be called holy ones because they are made and declared righteous in Christ. And then we noted there is another aspect of salvation, however, related to uh, God's work in the sinner. And it is connected to the work of the Spirit primarily and the work of regeneration and uniting us to Christ and his ongoing ministry conforming us to the character of Christ. And we noted there are three aspects of sanctification. There is the, the position of sanctification. That's where we're called saints or holy ones. There is progressive sanctification. That's the ongoing work of the Spirit to make us like Christ. And then there is perfected sanctification. And that's what we experience uh, when we're in the presence of Christ, no longer burdened with the presence of sin. But the very heart and the, the main uh, thrust of Scripture is the idea of progressive sanctification. It stands in the middle between of what we are and what we will be. It's what we are becoming now it's essentially becoming what we are in Christ and that is through the work of the spirit so we can define progressive sanctification as that ongoing process of being conformed in our whole person to the image of Christ it is the fruit as I noted of regeneration and the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit 
Now, again, justification and sanctification are distinct, but they're not separate from one another. There is no evidence, so there can be no confidence of having been justified if there is not the reality of being sanctified in Christ. The writer of Hebrews makes that abundantly clear. All of Scripture does, but the writer of Hebrews says this. In Hebrews chapter 12, uh, verse 14, Perceive, sanctificate peace with all men, and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. In other words, there is no justification where there is no reality of sanctification. And these are, again, important to keep distinct. But it is also true that sanctification is empowered and pursued rightly only to the degree that we grasp the fact that it has nothing to do with our justification. That's important. That sanctification is empowered and pursued rightly only to the degree that we grasp the reality of our justification. As a matter of fact, one said this, brief quote, but he says, The strength and the weakness of our grasp of justification by faith is integrally related to our freedom and joy in Christ. Now this is in the topic of legalism and uh, love, essential again to understand. It is when we understand this that we are devastated by the ruin of our sin and that righteousness is found only, com- only and completely in Christ, his death, his life, and his resurrection, that we are free to actually obey God. It's only when we realize that we have nothing to earn, we have nothing to gain, we have nothing to add to the righteousness of Christ, that we are actually freed as believers to joyfully pursue righteousness in Christ and obedience to Christ. It's only when we can say with the song that we sing so often, uh, these wonderful words, Behold him there, the risen lamb, my perfect spotless righteousness, the great unchangeable I am, the king of glory and of grace. At one with him I cannot die, my soul is purchased by his blood, my life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God. And it's when we grasp that that we're truly freed to know and to live for and to obey Christ. This is where there is a true understanding of the law or how commands function in the believer's life. And again, to repeat that obedience to Christ's commands are never the grounds of God's love for us or of earning favor. They are instead the expression of the reality of our sincere grasp of his grace to us in Christ. This is why the Old Testament saint could say, oh, how I love your law. I love your law. It is my meditation day and night. The Psalm 1, the godly man is the one who delights in the law of God. And in it, he meditates day and night and he produces spiritual maturity and reality in his life. But conversely, it's why Jesus Christ could say to his disciples and to his church that if you love me, you will keep my commandments. You will obey me. And then John adds in his epistle, and the commandments are not going to be burdensome. So love for God and the necessity of obedience to God's commands are bound together. They are not in conflict with one another. So to say that we stand in grace and to say that we are required to obey are not two opposite statements. They are together. And that's the crucial point to understand. Grace does not lessen the call to holiness. It actually magnifies it. It connects God's character to the whole man and not some man-made system. 
So this might, for some, be surprising, not, not for probably any here, but that in the Old Testament, the very core of the law and what God required from his people in relationship to him in Leviticus and what God requires from his people in the New Testament in covenant with God through Jesus Christ is this, same statement repeated, you shall be holy as I am holy. You shall be holy as I am holy. So the whole call to holiness and an understanding of grace and God's love in the covenant are commensurate. Now, all that to bring to this, that the problem with the legalists and with legalism, and just as a side note, although we're not going down this road, with the antinomian, and that is the person who says that the believer has no relationship to the law or the commandments whatsoever. They both, both of these positions are really not a wrong understanding of the law, but they're a wrong understanding of grace in union with Christ. It's a wrong understanding of what Jason read for us this morning out of Romans 6. That if we are united to Christ, we stand in grace, and it is that grace that causes us to fight the reign of sin in the believers of life. In fact, to destroy that reign and to be a slave to righteousness. It is union with Christ that empowers and necessitates that. And it is the work of the Spirit that compels us to that end and enables us to live in that way. So both the one who rejects law by antinomianism and the one who tries to live by law are both making this crucial error, this fatal mistake. They're making law the central issue rather than Christ. For the believer, Christ is the central issue, the person of Christ, both entrusting in his work and pursuing our life in him, in conformity to him. It's seeing and gazing upon Christ that produces obedience. Now on that, let me just take, mention one passage to you uh, that captures this well. It's in Romans chapter 8. Uh, just to really drive this point home and, and to get us, move us into uh, the discussion of how we discern the difference. Uh, in Romans 8 comes at the really uh, concluding uh, uh, topic that he began in chapter 6 which was in response to his explanation in Romans chapter 5 about the freeness and the fullness and the completeness of God's grace in Christ, that that Christ has accomplished everything, that God is completely satisfied, that there is nothing to add to his work, that the one who believes in Christ is completely reconciled to God, has experienced the reality and the fullness of his love in Christ, that the sin has been forever removed, that both its penalty and its power are done and put away in the life of the believer. And this comes through the believer's union with Christ. If you have been united with him in his death, we are united with him in his resurrection. That's the argument that he makes. And so then he he goes on in this explanation in chapter 7, and he talks about that the issue, however, was never with the law of God. The the law of God is good and righteousness and holy. The, The issue with people, the issue with image bearers, as Paul says, is that There is sin that resides in us. So he says, the law is holy, righteous, and good. But the reality is, in me, there's this this thing called sin. And so that which was holy and good and righteous and that could, should lead to life, actually just leads to condemnation. condemnation. It leads to death. Why? Not because there's a problem with the law, but because there's a problem with me, he says. And so when I look at what is holy and righteous and good, and then I see my inability to match to that, it merely exposes the sin in my own heart. Even more than that, Paul says, when I look at what is holy, righteous, and good, it just incites more sin in my heart. He said that so that sin might become utterly sinful. 
And then as he explains that, that the problem is with me and not with the law, which is holy, righteous, and good, he then gives that glorious statement and he says, there is no condemnation then for those who are in Christ Jesus. And this is where I wanted to just briefly mention. He says that in verse 8, or verse 1 of chapter 8. He says, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, that is through our corrupted humanity, what the law could not produce in us is anything good because sin is always going to pervert uh, the good, the, the God's requirement of us as his image bearers and in fact only incites more corruption. So he says, for what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. And here it is. So that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So what does he mean here then by the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in us? Well, there's essentially two ways to take this. It could be referred to the objective work of Christ. In other words, the, the righteousness that Christ fulfilled for us, that he accomplished for us, that is credited to us. And then if, to take it that way and to say, we who walk by the Spirit, is to say then the Spirit enables us to live consistently with that objective reality of what Christ conformed in us. Another way to take that is to say that the righteous requirement of the law is in fact what the spirit empowered obedience in a believer's life that enables them to actually fill the essence and the heart of the law of God, the requirements of God, the moral obligations of God on his people and on his image bearers. I think the second, and it tends to be the most common way that it's observed, is actually the right way to take that. It is what the Spirit produces within the believer because of union with Christ, because of justification, because of his indwelling ministry, to actually do what God calls us to do in the law. Not perfectly. As a matter of fact, later he's going to say the Spirit enables us to put to death the deeds of the flesh and so forth, but consistently and sincerely and truly. So what is the righteous requirement of the law? It is that spirit-enabled ability to live obediently to God's commands from love to God as sons, which he talks about in chapter 8, verse 14. We are sons, we have an inheritance, and as sons, we, because of the work of the Spirit, cry out, Abba, Father, Abba, Father. We relate to him as sons, we relate to him in love. And secondly, it is then the love to the brethren, which twice Paul gives in his epistles as the summary of the law, the summary requirement. So in Romans 13:10, just listen and I'll mention this. He says, Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. In Galatians 5:14, he says this: the whole law is fulfilled in one word: you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So the Spirit's empowering presence in the life of the believer is ultimately enabling us to feel his people to fulfill the very heart of the law which Jesus himself summarized as the greatest commandments on which all of the law and the prophets depend do you remember you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart with all of your soul with all of your mind with all of your strength and the second like that is you shall love your neighbor as yourself love then as Paul would say is the fulfillment of the law 
a love for others, particularly in the New Covenant for Christians, that is based on a love for God. That is the work of the Spirit. Now, how does that manifest here? How does that, where, where is that bringing us? It is to say this then, that to be justified and to be in Christ necessarily means that the believer is also regenerate and united to Christ, and that is the fruit out of which faith comes, and that the Spirit unites the believer to Christ so that the justified sinner is compelled and necessarily demonstrates a life and a desire of obedience to God. And that the commands of God bear weight on them. That they bear responsibility to them. That they compel the believer to live in accordance with righteousness. Because of the Spirit's enablement. But because it is the Spirit who empowers this. That it is not an obedience that comes from our own flesh. But it is something from God's work in us. And that means this. That obedience that is true obedience. That is the obedience that pleases and glorifies God, because it is empowered by the Spirit, comes with the fruit of the Spirit. It means it's obedience then that is marked by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and self-control. Or as Paul said to the Corinthians, it is the kind of obedience that is patient, kind, not jealous, does not brag, is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. That's Christian obedience. It comes with that kind of character, that kind of flavor. So then here is the question, with that being said. How can we tell when our obedience, when our sacrifice, and when our pursuit of holiness individually and corporately is by law, legalism, that is of the flesh in our own resources, or whether it is that spirit-produced reality inside a regenerate child of God that is born out of a love for God because of his work for us in Christ? How can we tell the difference? Well, ultimately... As you've probably gathered, we can tell the difference by what it produces, by the fruit that it produces. That's how we can tell. And so this brings us to the core question. How can we discern then in our own hearts and in our community whether we're operating out of a heart of legalism or love? Well, let's just tackle that briefly. So much more that could be said, but, but let's, let's just look at this. So how can we discern? How can we discern the difference of the motivation of our heart? And ultimately, that's what legalism comes down to, or love. The motivation of the heart. What's going on inside the heart? Why we're doing what we're doing? What is the end that we're aiming at in what we're doing? Just as a little footnote to that, Paul said to Timothy, the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart, a clean conscience. That's the goal of everything in his apostolic ministry and in his ministry as a preacher of the gospel. It really comes down to the motivation of the heart. So here, what are some of the fruits? Well, the first fruit of legalism then is this. The first thing to discern is the view of God that we're operating out of. Let me put it negatively and then we'll come back later to a positive. That legalism has a distorted view of God. It operates out of a distorted view of God. One said this, and actually it's a book I ordered. It hasn't come in yet, but I would really recommend it to you. I, I read in, in part in preparation. It's, it's by Sinclair Ferguson and it's called The Whole Christ. And he addresses this issue of, 
of legalism looking at a, a, an historical controversy in the church. But, uh, so I recommend that to you. It'll be in the book nook soon. But anyway, from that he says this. He asks this question. How do I think about God and what instincts and dispositions and affections towards him does this evoke in me? That's a question that we can answer. I mean, we can ask ourselves. Among the Pharisees, who were the quintessential legalists, who were the very poster children for being a legalist, uh, the ones we meet with in Scripture, uh, would have given verbal assent to God's love and grace in the covenant. They would have understood that God's covenant with Abraham was essentially a gracious covenant. It was an act of sovereign love uh, to the people of Israel. And yet, that's not how they actually functioned and thought and felt about God. You get some pictures of this, and let me just mention them to you. You're familiar with these, but again, we're, we're going to cover passages just very broadly to make some points. We're not going to look at them closely. But Matthew chapter 25, verse 24, there is uh, the parable of the talents, and the one who hid the talent in the sand, when he had to give an account to his master, he said this, Master, do you remember it? I knew you to be a hard man. I knew you to be a hard man. That was essentially reflecting the attitude of the legalist of the nation toward God. Hard man. Matthew 20, verse 11. There's a group said to him when they received it, they grumbled at the landowner. And it was those who had worked and borne the heat of the day. And they saw that those who had come in late received the same payment that was promised. And they were jealous and they were envious and they were upset by that. And they grumbled at the landowner. They're recognizing the attitude of those who were seeing the, the tax collector and the prostitute and the outcast and the sinner being ushered into the kingdom. Even though they had spent their life disobeying the law. Or we can remember in Luke 15, 28, the, the son who stayed at home when his brother, the prodigal, was received back and the gracious love of the father. And there was a feast that was made for him. What did the older brother say? He said, it says he became angry and would not go in. And the context there was seeing the grace of God being poured out and extended to those that they saw beneath them. And it made them angry. It was a distorted view of God. It was a distorted view of God. A legalistic spirit then sees God as restrictive, not gracious. It sees God as ready to punish, not full of mercies. This is not to say that God has not confessed as gracious and merciful, but it is to say within the heart of a legalist, that's how they feel about God. That's how they feel about God. Again, from Ferguson, I think captures this well. He says, legalism is related to the heart and the affections, how we feel about God. Legalism is the manifestation of a restricted heart disposition toward God, viewing him through a lens of negative law that obscures the broader context of the Father's character of holy love. This is a fatal sickness. So a legalistic heart has a view of God that sees him as reluctant to love, someone who needs to be coerced, Someone whose love needs to be earned. Someone whose love needs to be in some way manipulated. That he needs to be appeased before he can extend mercy. This attitude goes in how we present the gospel and think of the gospel. Let me lay this before you. It's whether we think of the gospel like this. Uh, God loves me because Christ died for me. Okay, God loves me because Christ died for me. Or whether we think of the gospel any, this way, Christ died for me because God loved me. 
Christ died for me because God loved me. Do you see the difference? One is a God who needs to be appeased, a God who is natural disposition towards us is anger, and yet because of the death of Christ, that could be alleviated to some way. The other realizes that it is inherent in the nature of God to love, and that love is expressed in the person of Christ and his provision of redemption. They're two completely different perspectives of God. Romans 5 tells us that God demonstrated his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God's love is the foundation of his provision of salvation for the elect, not their obedience or somehow worthiness of it. It was a love, Ephesians 1 tells us, that was granted to his elect, to his chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Again, getting this wrong or discerning this tells us a lot about our attitude toward God. And it affects then, as I noted, how we present God to others. Whether he is constantly angry at us because of sin that we need to try to alleviate by being good enough. Or whether it is the free offer of a welcome invitation to receive his grace and trust and obedience to him. There is the reality of wrath. There is the reality of judgment. But it is the promise of freedom from those things that is the compelling ministry of the gospel. Ultimately, in in our reception of the gospel. It is the inward attitude then uh, where we fall on that, or whether we have this thought that obedience then, if on a more positive sense, earns a special favor with God that places us above others. So one way that we can take that is negative, to say that God's constantly angry every mess up that I do, and so I constantly need to try to work up some kind of goodness to be accepted back into his favor. So I do bad, God is angry, and I need to do good, and then he's not angry. That's relating to him by law. The other is, takes it in a more positive direction but is still working by law that says my obedience and all the good things that I do give me a special favor with God and therefore actually my obedience places me in a somewhat exalted position with God and before others this is a second fruit the first fruit then is a distorted view of God a second one then is that flows from this is that a legalist has an inward feeling of superiority an inward feeling of superiority Uh, That's very common. Uh, Superiority because, again, righteousness is located in you, the individual. One uh, well-known address of this is by Christ in Luke 18. It says that he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And here's here's the kicker. And they viewed others with contempt. They viewed others with contempt, disdain, lower than... uh, A sort of inward mockery, really. Uh, And there he's saying that of the Pharisees, those who were outside of God's covenant mercy, those who were outside of God's covenant grace. But Paul addresses the same thing to the church, to those who are actually believers. He says this in Romans 14. He says, so it's the same root sin in both of self-righteousness. He says in Romans 14, just listen, except the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on their opinions. In verse 3, the one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat, and the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats. And so he's saying within the church there are some who are looking contemptuously at others, and then there's another group who are judging the others who are looking contemptuously at them. Each of them judging them by a standard that God himself had not laid down. Now, 
then what are some ways that we can identify this? Well, one, I already mentioned, but let's look at it a little closer. How do we know when we have this inward feeling of superiority? How do we know when we have a self-righteous sense of exaltation internally? Well, one is it produces in us then a critical, contemptuous attitude toward others. A critical attitude towards others. A contemptuous kind of attitude and perspective towards others. And there's a couple of ways this can be fueled. Let me just mention them to you. One, and this is really, really very, very common. And that is using or holding to personal or community convictions or applications of Scripture as a standard of righteousness. Holding to personal or community convictions or applications of Scripture as a standard of righteousness. That is, these are things not specifically laid down in Scripture as applications, but are based on one's own personal convictions or traditions. One said this, it's when we equate our opinions with the truth. When we equate our opinions with the truth. Now, just for example, within Judaism, it consisted of such things like this. Eating with unwashed hands. Uh, picking grains uh, from the head uh, of the, the stalks in the fields when it was the Sabbath, even though they were hungry. Uh, it is saying that you shall not heal on the Sabbath. And so if you did that, they condemned Jesus as working. And so that, as we noted before, were those traditions that came up around the law. He says, don't work on the Sabbath. And so they put out all of these distinctions and specifics of what is work. And if you broke one of those distinctions or applications, then, in fact, you were unrighteous. So it's the attitude, whether it's expressed or concealed, that when another person becomes spiritually mature or is attained to the level of spirituality that I am, then they will see things my way. They will see things the way that I do. There's just so many ways that we can do this within the church. Uh, we can do it especially in areas of purity or modesty. Uh, if you wear a skirt down to here, you're righteous. If you wear a skirt right here, you are unrighteous. If you show, if the V-neck goes down here, it's unrighteous. If it's up here, you're righteous. If you use a certain version of the Bible, you are spiritual. If you use another version, you are unspiritual. If you see, use the King James Version, then you are holy. If you use the NIV, then you are unholy and gone the way of Baal. We can go on and on. If you homeschool your children, you are righteous. If you do not homeschool your children, you are giving them over to Baal. You are compromising on your, your parental responsibilities. Or how about, how about family-integrated churches? So the truly righteous way to do to church are not to have any separate ministries such as children's ministries or Sunday schools because that is of the devil that wants to separate the family. The children have to be as a matter of righteousness and obedience in this main service with everyone else. We could go on and on and on. Now, it's not to say that homeschooling is bad. We did, and many of our families do, righteously and wonderfully. It's a good way. It's a good option. Matter of fact, in many instances, we would encourage that. It is to say that that's not a standard of righteousness. You can homeschool or not homeschool your children righteously or unrighteously. We heard a statement recently from someone not in this church uh, that made this statement. Uh, I don't see how a girl could wear a one-piece bathing suit on the beach, any of them, and be honoring God. 
Do you see what just happened? Now, you can get on a debate of what kind of bathing suit you should wear, whether bikinis are sinful and one piece and how long it should go or what. That, that's fine. But that person just automatically condemned every single person on the beach who names the name of Christ by not wearing the standard of clothing that they had. They judged their motives. They condemned them essentially to dishonoring Christ. That's legalism. That's legalism. And that's the kind of thing that Jesus was confronting. That's the kind of things that kept coming against Jesus. And again, there's so many other ways to say this. Now, in Romans 14, what's very interesting is notice that Paul never addresses the content of the dispute. Never. He never tries to convince the weak of why they shouldn't be weak. He never condones the strong for their superior position. He never even enters into that argument. It's a non-issue. He's saying that isn't the issue. The issue is, he says, that you accept one another. And you do that because you realize that it's not our acceptance that has the ultimate value. It is Christ's acceptance of us and God's acceptance of one another in Christ. And that is then the foundation for how we relate to one another. No one lives for himself and no one dies for himself. He says in verse 10, but why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we all stand before the judgment seat of God. He notes that the one who is weak and the one who can strong, is strong in this case can equally glorify God, equally receive God's praise and affirmation, or equally lose it. So by contrast, love humbly accepts one another because Christ has accepted us. It recognizes our brethren with whom we have disagreements that they are equally loved by Christ and they are equally unworthy of his love as we are, that we both received grace. And that we stand in that grace. And again, this does not mean that we don't share convictions, that we don't have discussions, and that we don't even try to persuade. It does mean that we do not hold other Christians in contempt or of a lesser spirituality who do not agree with us. That's the issue. It's a hard issue. Okay, here's another one that goes with this inward superiority. And again, I know there's so many other examples we could go through. That I'm just laying out the big idea here. One is we miscategorize sins. We miscategorize sins, the legalist does. In other words, we decide what is important and what is not. So, for example, in Matthew 23, Jesus said this, You tithe mint, dill, and cumin while neglecting the weightier provisions of the law, justice, mercy, those kind of things. So Jesus does not condemn them for tithing mint, dill, and cumin and all of the traditions that they had up. He condemns them for missing God's heart in their actions. So it's similar again there to Paul who said in 1 Corinthians 13 that we can do all kinds of sacrifice, have all kinds of knowledge and so forth, but without love it is meaningless. To have external service or sacrifice or fastidious and religious fastidiousness and religious duties with internal pride or a sense of security in one's own actions is to be a legalist. It is to stand outside the will of God. And that can happen in other ways too. Essentially, those in Matthew 7 were legalists. Lord, didn't we do these things in your name? Cast out demons and so on and so forth. And he'll say, depart from me. I never knew you. They were legalists. How were they legalists? Because they were saying they were accepted by God by all these things they were doing. They never had a humble hunger and thirst for righteousness before God. And again, there's many ways that we can do this. By being very concerned about our religious duty, 
being punctual, being diligent in every task, being at church every Sunday, wearing the right clothes, being involved in the right ministry, giving the right amount of time or the right amount of money or whatever it is to the church, while neglecting such sins as impatience, pride, covetousness, anger, greed, selfishness, contempt, idolatry, and those kind of sins in the heart. So you see how that works. I tithe mint, dill, and cumin. I do all of my religious duties, but I'm full of all kinds of sinful attitudes in my heart uh, that I become very comfortable with. That's a legalist. That's how we can tell the difference. Uh, so it's, and it sees oneself or community as the standard of that. What is acceptable is righteousness. Uh, it does this too. It produces a legalist. Legalism produces a harsh, we already noted this, condemning attitude towards the sin of others. And, and here I'm emphasizing this point, that legalism tends to view discipline and even discipleship to some degree and confrontation as retributive and not restorative. In other words, the point of it is to condemn, not to restore and help, not to build up and to edify, but rather to condemn. That's a legalist heart. Uh, and it does this in large, and we know that uh, this is uh, something that's crept in either to our lives or what we observe and others, uh, by magnifying the sins of others and minimizing the sins of self. And, and this is, I think, the simplest way to think of that is when we're more emotionally bothered by the sins of others than we are with our own sins. When we are preoccupied with being disturbed by the sins of others, but not with the sin that resides in our own heart and pursuing sanctification. Uh, that's, of course, Matthew 7. Do not judge so that you will not be judged, for in the way you judge, you will be judged, and by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. And so it is that attitude that uh, is not really bothered by any personal disobedience, inwardly, any of those attitudes, but is extremely bothered and careful to point out uh, the sin of others. That's, that's a legalist. By contrast, love for Christ is discerned when we can confront sin, and we could do that with an attitude of humility that realizes we're not above the sin that we're confronting, and that we too are susceptible to falling into that same sin if we are not guarded. And so it can allow one to go with the spirit of gentleness. This is what Paul says in Galatians chapter 6. And you're familiar, I'm just going to mention it. But he says, brethren, if anyone is caught in a trespass, now compare this with Matthew 7 in your mind. Keep those in two different columns. Uh, one is the legalist, here is operating out of love. Uh, brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, truly spiritual, truly under the power and the control of the Holy Spirit, restore such a one. Don't condemn them. Don't bring down oppression upon them. Restore them. Have a heart attitude that wants to bring them back into a place of the blessing of God and obedience to God. Restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Where does this gentleness come from? Each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and here it is, thus fulfill the law of Christ. The law of Christ by bearing, walking in love. Along with this then, a true heart of love for Christ recognizes personal sin with such clarity, with such realness within our own hearts 
that we see our own sin as being greater than the sin that we are confronting. And so here we have the Apostle Paul who would say, even as he's writing to the Romans, wretched man that I am who will save me from this body of death. Writing to Timothy and talking about the extension of mercy to others, the Apostle Paul, and I don't, I hope not, anyway, any of us really wants to compare ourselves to him in terms of practical obedience. But he says this in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1. He says, It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost. Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him to eternal life. So legalist attitude has a harsh condemning attitude. It's more concerned with pointing out the sin than it is restoring that brother. That goes a love, uh, in the heart of love by, uh, in, in distinction from that goes with humility. Recognizing that my sin is far worse and even if I didn't sin in that same way, I could sin in that way. And so I with compassion want to come with you the same way I want someone to come with compassion with me. Confronting my sin, yes, but doing it with a spirit of gentleness. Uh, if I were to be in the, on the other side of that equation. Okay, thirdly, another way that this haughty spirit is shown is it's concerned, the legalist is concerned with me remaining separate from others. Now, there is a proper separation from the world and there is a proper separation from those who are walking in disobedience. First Corinthians 5, Paul tells them to not associate with a so-called brother who is living in sin. Don't associate with them. There, there is that kind of separation, but that's not what's being talked about here. Uh, the legalist heart, however, is a separation from others because of a sense of spiritual superiority that lacks any concern for their spiritual plight. And so it's like when the Pharisees again came to Jesus and they said to him, or his disciples, the disciples of Jesus, why is your teacher eating with tax collectors and sinners? We would have nothing to do with them. Or in Luke 7, when the, the sinful woman who was redeemed came and washed Jesus' feet with her hair, and the, uh, Simon the Pharisee said, if he knew what sort of person this woman was who was touching him, that she is a sinner, he wouldn't let her do that. And then Jesus proceeds to give a parable that exposes the littleness of his love that he had for God. If he had true love for God and was operating out of that, he would have rejoiced in this woman's salvation. He would have found delight in her worship of this one who was a teacher of God. But instead, he merely inwardly condemned her and judged her. By contrast, love reaches out to sinners and unbelievers in a desire to win them. Well, just for time's sake, let's move on. There's another aspect or kind of category of legalism. It's an inward confidence then based on external behavior rather than the person of the heart. And again, there is some bleed over in here, but let's see if there's some distinct ways we can note this. Uh, it is an external opposition to sin a legalist does while internally loving it. It's an external opposition to sin. So what is the opposite? We noted in Romans chapter 8 that there is the difference between uh, the legalist and those operating out of a spirit-empowered love is that those operating out of a spirit-empowered love have a habit of a mind set on the spirit, the things of the spirit, and they are putting to death the deeds of the flesh. They're fighting sin in their life. But that's not how it is with a legalist because, again, they live by law. And so in Matthew 23, again, a familiar passage, uh, he says this in Matthew 23, 
Uh, he says, Woe to you, uh, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside are full of robbery and self-indulgence. He later says, On the outside you appear beautiful, but inside you're full of dead men's bones and uncleanliness. So the legalist has a hard outward opposition to sin, but is not fighting the love of that sin in their heart. They're just operating out of rules. And that's, again, why they can be comfortable with greed and selfishness and idolatry and so forth while holding to some external standard. Jesus condemned them in Luke chapter 16, 14, verse 14. He says, Pharisees, they were lovers of money. They were lovers of money. So with all of their outward devotion to God, they really loved the honor and they loved uh, the money and the ways that it accrued to their benefit. Um, there is within a legalist heart then a concern, a greater concern with how we appear before others than how we appear before God. Again, of the Pharisees, Jesus said, you justify yourself in the sight of men. And they do all their deeds, he says in Matthew 23, to be noticed by men. By contrast, so... By contrast, let me say this. By contrast, the heart that loves God it is operating out of love is not inwardly concerned about the opinions of others or being evaluated by others. It's operating out of an obedient love to Christ. So Paul could say to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 4, he says, it's a very small thing that I would be evaluated by you. He says in this way, in verse 3, but it's a very small thing that I would be examined by you or by any human in court. In fact, I do not even examine myself, for I'm conscious of nothing against myself. But I'm not by this acquitted, but the one who examines me is the Lord. And commensurate with this is just what he addresses next, is that a legalist then has a tendency to judge the motives of others. I know why you did this. Have you ever heard anybody say that? I know why you did this. Do you? No, we don't know that. We can deal with someone based on what they actually do and say, but we cannot judge their motives. Listen to what Paul says. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time. Wait until the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. So a legalist is one who is assuming from a sense of superiority that they know why people are doing things. They're basically standing in the place of God, operating out of love. It says, I don't know why they're doing it. I, I see what they're doing and I want to help them. I may want to come alongside them to counsel them, to help them grow in the Lord if that's necessary for, the, for their joy and for their blessing. But ultimately only God knows the heart. One operating out of love then positively does this. It says, we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. Is the notion, then a, a way to discern that is in, the, is in the motive of the heart. Are we going to someone or perceiving someone or acting towards someone with a sense that condemns them because of an assumption of their motives? Uh, because of them, uh, because of a kind of glory that we'll receive and being zealous or is it going out of a concern to please the Lord, which would be to edify and build up that brother? Well, there's a lot more to be said, but I want to wrap this up. Uh, what does legalism produce then? And I'm just going to list these. When there is, an when there is a legalistic, and, uh, and some of you come out of these uh, kind of uh, experiences, uh, when there is a, a legalistic dominating sort of attitude, it produces an atmosphere of fear rather than grace. Constant fear, fear of being exposed, fear of being seen as you really are. 
I've heard of churches and know those who came out of these uh, where somebody watched a television show that the, the pastor didn't think was right, and so he publicly shames them and calls them out during a sermon uh, in the midst of the congregation. Those kind of things. It happens, believe it or not. And that produces an atmosphere of fear. You can't really be who you are, and you can't really grow then because there's always this fear of sin, so this need to keep up appearances so that sin won't be exposed. When sin being defined in those contexts, usually not by actual sin, but by some sort of false standard again. Uh, it produces an atmosphere of fear rather than grace. Secondly, a legalistic, uh, a loving congregation has a sense of grace, has a sense of forgiveness, has a sense of transparency and openness with one another. Uh, secondly, what does legalism produce? It produces factions and divisions rather than unity. So a legalistic atmosphere, there's factions, there's groups, there's warring peoples against one another. There's those who hold on. So in some way that Paul addresses that, I'm of Paul, I'm of Peter, I'm of Apollos, and so on and so forth, I'm of Christ. There's these factious groups. The church of Corinth knew that continually. And that happens with a legalistic uh, mindset. Uh, but where there's the operation of the spirit of love, there's a spirit of unity. A spirit of oneness, a same-mindedness towards a love for Christ. Number three, where there is a legalistic uh, uh, community, it's noted by harshness rather than mercy and discipleship. Again, that's retributive. It's that condemning rather than restoring. And fourthly here, just finally, it produces a legalistic atmosphere, spiritual immaturity and spiritual deception at worst. Whereas... Uh, where there's the operation of love, it produces spiritual maturity, joy, happiness, hope, help in this Christian walk. Well, let me just, again, I, I keep saying this, but this, I mean it this time. Uh, um, just very briefly, how do we move from legalism to love? How do we move from, if, if there is legalism, how do you move from legalism to love? Or how do you foster and nourish a heart of love within our own hearts and within the community? Well, uh, what you already know, it's by meditating on the glory of God in himself, his holiness and his goodness. Be holy for I am holy. And when we do that, then we have a, an understanding of our own indwelling sin that humbles us and keeps us dependent upon Christ when we have a right view of God. When we define sin as scripture defines it, and this is... A, Important, but somewhat of a footnote. In order to not be a legalist, really, you could say this. It, it's a right view of God that gives us then a right view of sin. When we have a right view of sin, we can't be a legalist. It destroys self-righteousness. What is a definition of sin? A definition of sin is this, given to us by John. It is lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Lawlessness is any lack of conformity to God's holiness. And so James 2.10 says, whoever keeps the whole law and stumbles in one point has been guilty of the whole thing. Why? Because God's holiness isn't in parts or degrees. It's absolute. He makes the same argument in Galatians. In other words, obedience, if we want to relate to God by law, it's all or nothing. And so if we grasp that, then we realize, oh, sin runs much deeper in my heart than I thought. Uh, sin includes then not only deed, but the inward desire and intention. And so Christ said, out of the heart comes all kinds of sin, anger, immoralities, murder, and so forth. 
The indictment against man before the flood was that the thoughts and intentions of their heart are over only evil continually. So when we realize the holiness of God and we realize that sin is any want or lack of conformity within us to that standard, then there's always reason to be humbled. And it's a destroyer of self-righteousness. One said this, one uh, old theologian, Wilhelmus Abrackel, he says this, The more man progresses in sanctification, listen to this, it's wonderful, the more clearly he will aim for the glory of God in all his activity. His initiative proceeds from love for God, the fear of God, and obedient submission to the will of the sovereign and only majestic Lord. However excellent, he goes on to say later, however excellent his activity may otherwise have been, if in this activity his own honor, pleasure, and advantage have been the objective, he abhors himself, humbles himself before the Lord, and seeks forgiveness. That's a genuine response. And so what he's saying there, again, is that we we can't, the true Christian that understands the pervasiveness of sin and the holiness of God realizes that even in their best act that they have reason to be humbled if there was any sense of perceivable self-glory in it. And so the humble, the mature, and so here's the conflict, or here's the paradox. Where there's true spiritual maturity... And the more spiritually mature you are, the greater you will recognize your own sin. So that's exactly the opposite, right? If you're a legalist, then you equate maturity more and more with what you're doing, right? Your standard that you're meeting and so forth. If there's a true experience of grace and spiritual maturity in the heart, then you actually come to see your sin more and more because God keeps getting bigger and you keep getting smaller. His standard of holiness keeps getting clearer and your reality of our sin keeps becoming more evident, and grievous. And so spiritual maturity is when we become smaller in our own eyes and God becomes greater. Christ becomes greater and rely more and more on grace. That's spiritual maturity. Spiritual maturity is not even what Jesus again confronted the church with. It's not doctrinal knowledge. It's not amount of time spent in religious duty and service. It's not amount of personal sacrifice. It's amount of love for Christ and dependence upon grace. And so Paul could even say as a mature Christian, when I am weak, then I am strong. When I become less and less dependent on my resources and more and more dependent on Christ, that's where maturity takes place. And that's where strength comes in. And so one said this, and I'll have to end with this. Well, um, I will end with this. So he says, uh, let me quote a brackle again. He says, the old nature... Even though it does not dominate, nevertheless remains in man. There it is. Uh, It retains its own nature and does not cease to manifest itself at every opportunity. It is the wise will of God to allow the old nature to remain. Hereby the free grace of God will shine forth all the more as well as his long-suffering and power, preventing the, the new nature from being extinguished and devoured by the old nature, as strong as it may be. Hereby, Christ's atonement always remains fresh and precious and the only foundation for our justification and joy. Hereby, man remains small in himself and it gives reason for continual battle upon which the crown is promised. You see, it, it's a greater and greater reliance upon Christ. And what will be the fruit of that? It will be obedience to Christ's command that we love one another even as God in Christ has loved us. So in short, and what is Christ's rebuke to the church at Ephesus? It is that they had left their first love. They were operating out of legalism. They no longer were operating out of a humbled dependence upon Christ and their own weakness and dependence upon him.
And then how then were they to return for their first love and repent? Well, as noted, they were essentially to turn to those works they did at first. What were those works that they did at first? Well, it's probably best to understand those as works that were motivated of love for the brethren. Love for the brethren. Passionate works of love for the brethren. And he's saying return to that without neglecting the other You need to identify false doctrine. You're commended for that. You need to pursue those things, but you need to do it in the context of love for Christ and a demonstrative love for the brethren. And in that way, you can keep your lampstand, which, just again in short, is probably best understood as saying you're witness to the world. The church there at Ephesus is now gone. It's a wasteland, essentially, spiritually. And even all of their glory and their wealth is that's now been filled in the ocean there with silt it's no longer a harbor community and there's no longer a vibrant church there and so historically we can see that that is exactly what christ did well i did go just a couple minutes over please forgive me to finish that up uh so we will take communion next week uh we don't like to skip that but we'll come in be ready to take communion next week and um We'll do that. But let me go ahead and for the sake of pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for grace. Lord, we are so dependent on grace. And your grace is so free and so full in Christ. That we who know you realize that we stand on nothing else. We could stand on nothing else. There is nothing within us that could commend us to you. Even, even in our best, we note that we have remaining corruption within us, as Paul said. But we praise and repeat you and repeat with him that we thank God that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that the law of the spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and death. And in you we can have freedom. A freedom to love you. A freedom to walk with joy. A freedom to unto righteousness. Help us to display that, Lord. And where there are any tendencies of us to live out of law or the flesh, convict us and lead us into the way that is right and pleasing to you. And if there are any here who don't know you, uh, then we pray today would be the day of salvation. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.